Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. State of emergency in the late Ottoman Empire. Michael Tolbert and I, Thailand Gingersh, will be discussing the introduction of the Idari Urfiye during the first constitutional period 1876-1878 with Dr Noemi Levi-Aksu, British Academy Newton International Fellow of Birkbeck College School of Law and also a former member of Boazic University History Department. Noemi, if I can start off by asking, what is the Idari Urfiye? And where does it come from and what does it mean? The Idari Urfiye is a kind of state of emergency, but uh, I tend to refrain from translating it because uh, it has its specific dynamics, so I think we'll use <laughs> the, the term Idari Urfiye. And it's a notion which was introduced in so the first Ottoman constitution in 1876. And uh, as Every kind of state of emergency or state of siege, another notion which was uh, used in this period, it uh, allows a s- suspension of the normal legal order in exceptional circumstances in a specific place. So this is basically the definition you can find in the Article 113 in uh, the Ottoman Constitution in a- of 1876. Could you perhaps tell us about the ways in which the Ottoman state had dealt with these sorts of situations prior to the first constitution? The idea of he is actually both new and old <laughs> in the sense that uh, this is a notion which makes sense uh, in the context of uh, a constitutional state that is allowing for suspension of the constitutional or legal order uh, and Within this constitutional framework, this is the tension which is inherent to uh, all kinds of state of siege or uh, state of emergency is established in Europe uh, in this period. But of course, uh, the Ottoman state had <coughs> already faced uh, exceptional dangers in its history and uh, many of them. So uh, what uh, can be parallel to the state of emergency in uh, the pre-first constitutional period is uh, military expeditions, appointment of uh, military governors, uh, something which was actually very frequent, especially if you look at the border regions, especially in the Balkan area. So there were there were already many um, ways to deal with specific challenges, especially revels, rebellions, uh, and wars. As you kind of mentioned, this isn't the first period of conflict that the Ottoman Empire has uh, um, suffered in, the, in, the, in its history. But what's particular about the threats that it faces in this later part of the 19th century that require this new kind of legal regime? The imposition of uh, such a regime and actually the very invention of the notion is uh, connected to two aspects of uh, Ottoman history in this time. And the first one, as I said before, is constitutionalism. So uh, the emergence of a new legal political order, which requires a further definition of uh, policies which may be contrary to this order. This is the first thing. And the second thing which you mentioned is, of course, threats. And uh, there were actually many threats in this uh, long 19th century, uh, foreign threats or um, threats from foreign powers, 
uh, and internal threats, both being often connected, uh, the rise of national movements, especially uh, in the Balkan area in this period. So if you look at the very period when the state of emergency was uh, invented and uh, codified, it coincided with with rising tensions in the Balkan area, especially rising tensions uh, with Russia. And uh, actually, the first implementation of the state of emergency was during the Russia-Ottoman War in uh, 1877. So I think it's important to take into account this context and this first implementation as well uh, in order to understand the political uh, and social meaning of the notions, especially in this region, this specific uh, region, the Balkan. We've framed this time as uh, a start of constitutionalism. There's the new political order It's the long 19th century. We have the rise of national movements and it's coincided with uh, rising tensions. Uh, Specifically, you're looking at the Balkans and you've mentioned the the, the key uh, events of the Russian-Ottoman War in 1877. So these are all the milieu where Idari Orfia emerges from. But is there a specific trigger that requires or a specific impetus from the Ottoman government to come up with something that is relatively new in terms of their legal understanding of implementation of military rule or however you want to uh, translate Idar Urfie. What What is the, the triggering or is there a, a single triggering point for, for introducing this? It's difficult to say, actually. And uh, as you know, the first constitutional period remained relatively little studied compared to the second one or other periods. And uh, I think there is still a lot to do about the genesis of this uh, constitution. There are a few important uh, works by uh, Eileen Cochignon and other about uh, the discussions which actually uh, led to the uh, first constitution. And uh, I think this uh, gives an insight into how the Alfidari, as well as many actually other notions or other articles of uh, the constitution uh, were born. And in many cases, included the Alfidari, I think we have to deal with both inspirations from the West, to put it uh, in this way, uh, and other constitutional and legal frameworks, and at the same time, a desire to root the constitutional idea and the new constitutional text into the Ottoman political legal tradition. And I, I guess this is exactly what happened with the Idari uh, On the one hand, being inspired by other uh, frameworks, especially the French one and Actually, if you look at uh, the article of the constitution, which I mentioned before, 113, it has uh, many um, similarities with the 1848 uh, articles in the French cases. And and I guess this is uh, one of the main factors with uh, this uh, contemporary elaboration of the uh, state of siege or state of emergency in uh, other countries. But on the other hand, uh, the very terminology which was adopted for, that was adopted for the state of emergency in the Ottoman context, that is this term, Idari uh, Ophie, brings us uh, to another kind of genealogy or influence. And uh, this is uh, the Ottoman legal political uh, tradition, especially this notion of earth, referring not to uh, local customs in this case, but rather to uh, what we could uh, define as the lex principis or the uh, power of the sovereign to make law. 
And uh, I think it was also very important uh, for the commission that drafted the first constitution to root such a notion in a longer uh, Ottoman tradition, political and uh, legal tradition. And that's where we can uh, locate the Fidere as this product of the both internal and external influences. I'd like to pick up on uh, what you mentioned about this being a time of inspiration from the West. Obviously, this is the uh, period of constitutionalism, the first constitutional era, and how templates uh, from Western templates were being applied in the Ottoman Empire. Is it fair to say that Urfidari, or uh, state of emergency, is an extension of constitutionalism? Is it a logical outcome of having a constitution in a, a, a polity like the Ottoman Empire? Yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that uh, both in legal and uh, political studies, uh, as you know, the state of emergencies and similar versions of what we uh, could uh, call in a broader sense states of exception have been tightly connected to this constitutional order as a tension within constitutionalism, as a tension within sometimes democracies or democratic states, and uh, without which actually these states cannot be taught. So there is this uh, very tight link which we can observe in uh, various countries. And indeed, I mean, if you look at the constitutional states of the time, uh, all of them, to my knowledge, had this kind of provisions which that enabled uh, the constitutional state to suspend the constitution or to suspend uh, fundamental rights within the constitution. And this is, I guess, uh, important in the Ottoman case. And this is what makes the Ophidari be a new uh, notion in this context. But on the other side, I would argue, and I argue uh, in my work, that um, the Ophidari, uh, because it also kind of continues uh, political and legal uh, tradition which that had uh, a longer history in the Ottoman case, it should also be uh, conceived uh, beyond this constitutional framework. And uh, in this respect, I guess uh, one of the most interesting periods to study is the period after the suspension of the constitution in 1878. That is one de facto if not the Yure, the constitution is suspended, the parliament is uh, also suspended, but the Alfidari continued to be implemented, either um, extended or uh, also we can talk of new implementations in various uh, localities. And I think it leads us on another uh, aspect of the Alfidari, and which is uh, not essential to constitutionalism and which actually can be parallel to other cases than non-constitutional states such as Russia. And uh, that's why uh, the comparative framework uh, in which we can uh, study the Ophidere, in my opinion, uh, should include not only the Western constitutional states, but also a broader uh, array of countries, especially Russia, in which we can observe these dynamics. Not only the uh, constitutional uh, states take seriously this possibility to suspend legal order or to use exceptional measures and to put them in the law. 
In your work, you've looked at uh, specific examples, particularly around the, the areas uh, of the Balkans under Ottoman control. What would the, the daily experiences of locals living under the Orifidari be? Could you give us any illustrations, perhaps? Uh, first of all, it's... Uh, should be said that the experience of uh, the Orfidari depended on who you were. I mean, and uh, I guess there were many factors such as uh, social, ethnic uh, affiliations uh, that made uh, the uh, Orfidari uh, vary according to the subjects. Uh, basically, what the Orfidari imply when the Orfidari was uh, imposed Curfew was established, publications, associations, rights of gatherings were suspended, weapons were to be collected, and in order to do so, the military uh, forces had the right to search uh, private houses day and night. So there were this kind of uh, specific measures that could impact the daily life of uh, the inhabitants. But one of the major aspects of the Orfidere and one that materialized the exceptional order that was imposed then was the creation of court-martial in order to uh, try the uh, suspects of disorders in this context. And uh, this court-martial had the power to uh, sentence without any possibility of appeal the ones who were uh, considered as guilty of any uh, political disorders or uh, infringements of public order. We observed this actually, uh, my work was not specifically uh, centered on the Balkan when I started, but because uh, most of the cases that I could find from the period uh, of Abdul Hamid II and first con- early first constitutional period belonged to the Balkan, I focused more on this, not exclusively on this. So uh, what we see about uh, the way the Orfidari was implemented, we can see it through uh, both the Ottoman archives and also uh, the British archives. And we see it both from the perspective of the military authorities, thus is gathering troops and uh, enabling these troops to um, play a major role in policing and uh, maintaining order. And we can see it also through petitions that were sent uh, by subjects to uh, the diplomatic uh, representations and also to the Ottoman states. And there, what they uh, say about uh, the uh, Orfidare is mainly the abuses committed by the military forces, violences, uh, searching houses uh, without reason, and in short, abusing their authority, arresting arbitrarily people who were not, according to the petitioners, guilty, such as teachers, such as honest <laughs> subjects, to put them, uh, to put it in uh, their terms. And uh, the main complaint, and I guess the main effect of uh, the Orfidari was this intrusion of the military forces in the everyday life, and an intrusion which that was often uh, brutal and that disrupted this daily life, at least for uh, some subjects, especially the non-Muslims in the Balkan case. The ability of the state to interfere in people's daily lives in this case seems to be ridiculously extensive. I mean, you spoke about curfews and getting rid of the freedom of assembly and the freedom of free speech. 
what happens to these individuals who are arrested? I mean, first of all, do we have a sense of the scale? How many people are we talking? Dozens or hundreds or thousands? How many people fall foul of these laws? And then when they do get arrested, what kind of fate is in store for them uh, in terms of their punishment? Unfortunately, we don't have uh, an idea, a specific idea of how many people were uh, tried or convicted under uh, by this court martial. And uh, one reason for this is that uh, I was not able uh, to find extensive records for these courts. Uh, I could find a few uh, records of interrogations and of uh, trials, but uh, very few actually. And we can find about others in diplomatic correspondences, so they mentioned it. But of course, it does not help to make a kind of quantitative approach to this question. What we know better is uh, how this court-martial worked. And actually, there were uh, court-martial, but they were not entirely military courts. They were actually mixed courts, including both civil and military uh, staff. And their main specificity was that they acted according or they tried according to uh, the military penal code. Uh, that had been uh, adopted in uh, 1869 instead of the normal penal court. And uh, that the procedure was very different than the one that had been uh, established for the Nizami court. And as you know, justice uh, reform had been one of the main aspects of uh, the Tanzimat. So uh, in these reforms of the Tanzimat and these uh, Nizami courts, the principle of accountability, the principle of appeal was very central to the um, uh, new institution. In the case of uh, the Ophidare and this court martial, uh, the verdict was immediate and the uh, application of the verdict was immediate as well. Uh, so there was not any possibility of appeal and uh, the implementation of death penalty was much easier than uh, it was the case in uh, the uh, Nizami courts. Death penalty, public executions were actually very uh, closely uh, associated to the Ophidare, especially in the Balkan area, with kind of public in- execution as a sign of uh, restoration of uh, public order. And interestingly, if you look at what the military staff said about uh, the Ophidare, especially I'm thinking of um, Ahmed Mukhtar Pasha, who had, uh, was appointed after the Russian uh, Ottoman war in order to uh, reestablish order in and reform the region of Monastir. And he has a very interesting and long report, actually, on the necessity of the uh, Ophidare in this region. The justification is uh, first social conditions and uh, constant disorders done. But then there is another justification and another uh, arguments develop them. And this argument is the incapacity of the legal order of the Tanzimat, of the Nizami courts, to perform justice in a sufficiently efficient and spectacular way. And because nobody is afraid of <laughs> the Nizami courts, because Everyone knows that these courts are uh, very slow, that they are lenient, according to Ahmed Murtabasha. Uh, nobody would fear to be tried and 
this uh, does not deter anyone from uh, committing crimes. On the, the other hand, on the contrary, according to Ahmed Mutab al-Shah, court martial and their spectacular expeditive arbitrary justice is a strong deterrent for uh, the potential uh, criminals and is thinking and speaking mostly uh, about bandits and uh, and gangs. So uh, punishment and spectacular punishment, expeditive justice is indeed very central to uh, both the implementation, but also actually the legitimization of the Orfidari by uh, the authorities and especially the military authorities. <laughs> So we seem to be seeing this application of the Idarei Urfiyeh after the Tanzimat, after the establishment of the Nizamiya courts as a as a reaction to their inefficiency, as a reaction to the slow process and to to act as a deterrent to enable court marshals to uh, establish authority, establish some kind of control in, in certain regions. You've mentioned diplomatic correspondences where we can trace complaints, where we can trace experiences of locals, of uh, foreigners as well. And my uh, question is something that you've touched on in your research, which is the international response to this state of emergency. It's the international curiosity, it's their uh, reaction to the Ottoman suspension of uh, the normal state of affairs. Particularly, you look at the privileges, the capitulations of foreigners in Ottoman lands. Could you give us any illustrations? Could you give us any examples of uh, sources you've seen uh, where uh, we see a, a reaction to this establishment of a state of emergency? Sure. Actually, this came out as a surprise when I started my research. This is not something uh, I had thought about at all. I mean, I saw this more as a kind of internal affair, uh, local or imperial, but uh, I had not thought really about the international uh, reactions or implications. And actually, uh, these reactions started uh, as soon as uh, the Constitution was promulgated in uh, 1876. Uh, I remember finding in the French diplomatic archives a draft of the constitution with this uh, article 113 and with a kind of uh, red ink uh, underlining this idare uh, term and definition saying uh, we must be careful this is something which that may go against the capitulations. And uh, this idea actually... Uh, continued with the first implementation of the Idarei in 1877 during the Ottoman War, as soon as the Idarei was first uh, implemented in Istanbul. And uh, of course, because this was the capital, this had a specific uh, impact. And uh, almost immediately, uh, foreign powers, France, Great Britain and other petitioned collectively to uh, the port in order to protest the uh, Idarei Orfie. And to protest actually one aspect of uh, the uh, Idarei Orfie they were um, displeased with, that is the possible uh, inclusion of foreigners within the scope of the Idarei Orfie. That actually was not explicit 
uh, in the constitutional uh, definition nor in uh, any other uh, text. But uh, the Idario Fie is defined in the uh, first constitution uh, in territorial terms. That is, the Idare is to be proclaimed and implemented in a, diff- in a specific territory. Uh, this is the same, actually, from, uh, with other uh, versions, I mean, in other countries. I mean, the state of siege, and in many cases, actually, there is even this fiction of siege that is a part of the territory which is single, that is singled out of uh, the whole territory as if it were besieged. You don't have the fiction, the same fiction in the Ottoman case, but you have the same idea. You are uh, taking a part of the territory out of the normal territory and uh, you are implementing them, uh, their specific order. Now, this idea... Uh, according to the great powers, according to the uh, diplomatic um, representatives, uh, had the potential to be contrary to the capitulations and the privilege of extraterritoriality in the sense that there was nothing uh, saying that the foreigners would be exempted from such an implementation. And indeed, when they uh, wrote to the port or uh, went to the port in order to ask Bosk in Istanbul, and then uh, the same scenario reproduced itself in Salonika, in Manastir, in all the places where uh, the Idare of Fie uh, was implemented, they always got, got the answer that there was no exception for the foreigners. But uh, under the pressures of uh, these foreign powers, uh, the Ottoman state issued a memorandum that uh, reiterated the fact that there would not be exception for the foreigners, but uh, that allowed the foreigners to go away from the specific uh, region under the Ophida within a few days. So they had the possibility to go away uh, from this region. And uh, if they wanted to stay, then they would be subject to the Alfidare, uh, but they could benefit from consular aid or legal aid or um, interpreter or this kind of legal uh, provisions. I guess one of the things that's worth reminding our listeners is that these capitulations um, give European powers extensive rights over indigenous Ottoman communities, if you like, so over various non-Muslim communities. So do we then see any examples of the British or the French or the Russian ambassador, for example, trying to intercede on behalf of someone who was an Ottoman subject, but treating them as if they were a foreigner, in inverted commas? Yes, it happened a lot, actually, in the Balkan. I mean, in the region of uh, Salonika Monastir, and that was one of the reasons for uh, these petitions issued by Greeks or uh, Slavic uh, populations uh, that actually were claiming for protection, that were uh, protesting against uh, the arbitrary or the brutality uh, of the Ottoman state, but beyond that, that were uh, seeking an escape from uh, the court martial. And uh, in some instances, I mean, I'm thinking mostly of uh, the British uh, consuls uh, in uh, Salonika or Monastir. They did intervene, uh, 
most often though for their own national, I mean purely uh, British uh, national. Sometimes they did for uh, other uh, Ottomans, for Ottoman subjects as well. I mean, I have in mind the case of a teacher, for example, that was arrested for uh, nationalist propaganda because of the books he had in his house. So in these cases, we uh, see attempt uh, from the part of the consuls to uh, go to the military staff or governor and try to uh, intercede without much success, though. Because, uh, as I say, I mean, uh, we can see uh, this earthy as the encounter between uh, two legal factions, actually, the ones being extraterritoriality and this idea, or capitulations, this idea that these people were in the Ottoman Empire but were not uh, subject to the uh, Ottoman, uh, the law in, uh, uh, of the Ottoman Empire. And on the other hand, this other fiction, this fiction of the Orfidare, that is, the territory was within the Ottoman Empire, but it was kind of uh, singled apart from the rest of the Ottoman Empire in a legal and uh, political way. And of course, uh, the only possible answer to such a confrontation between uh, two incompatible uh, legal fictions was negotiations. And uh, interestingly, throughout the period, these uh, negotiations went on, but at no point uh, the question was solved in a definite way. That is, um, and I think the reason uh, was that uh, neither uh, the great powers nor uh, the Ottoman Empire had actually the capacity or the power to solve it uh, totally. So they were both trying to keep their interests and on a kapaka or local basis. But if you look at the regulations that were issued throughout the period, and there were not many actually on the Orfidare, uh, uh, there is not a single word about the foreigners. So we've seen the interest of the great powers in the exterritoriality of uh, the uh, lo- or the foreigners in, in Ottoman lands. We, you mentioned before that French diplomats had noticed Article 113 and had noted that they must be careful about this, uh, th- about this article. And we also know that the état de siège, state of emergency, is all of the similar genre, of the similar idea of constitutionalism and of the similar idea of a state of siege. First of all, did the French notice that there was some kind of similarity between their understanding of state of emergency or état de siège and the Ottoman definition and application of état de siège. And what does that mean in terms of our translation of idarei urfi or urfi dari or any other way that they framed it? Um, I guess that the French or the British noticed the similarities in the uh, sense that they translated the term uh, by uh, most often, I mean, uh, state of siege or even in uh, the British archives. So they were aware that uh, this kind of provisions was uh, very similar to the ones they had uh, in their own constitution. Um and of course, as I said before, the Ottomans uh, were very much aware that uh, this uh, concept uh, existed in uh, other constitutions. Actually, one of the terms they uh, considered before opting uh, for uh, Fidari was Muhasara Ali, 
which is that, and this is uh, the exact translation for uh, état de siège or a state of siege. And this is a term that was used, for example, in Ottoman newspapers during the French Commune. Uh, so even before the constitution and even before the term was uh, invented in uh, the Ottoman uh, constitution, this notion and uh, what it implied was known uh, by the Ottoman statesmen and even a broader uh, audience, I would say. The term itself uh, and its translation, as I said before, I mean, I prefer not to translate it. And the reason for this is first that in the Ottoman case, there is uh, no idea of war at all. So when you have the state of siege, a notion such as the state of siege, this implies a military metaphor this idea that uh, there is either a real war ongoing or something like a war, a fictional war, and that you have a territory which is just like war or just us in the circumstances of war. In the Ottoman case, you have nothing like this in the notion Idari or fear. On the contrary, you have this uh, rule of uh, the, the earth, this uh, rule of uh, the sovereign, that is emphasized. And this is something that is uh, very structural, very much rooted in uh, specific uh, Ottoman or Islamic uh, legal uh, political uh, tradition. And that's why also I uh, tend not to use the term state of emergency for the same reason. No military metaphor, no idea at all of emergency, either in the terminology or in the the everyday uh, application. And I think this is something which explains how the Idari of fear very soon became a kind of uh, regular tool of governance in the Balkan and later on in other provinces as well. I mean, this has to do with uh, tra- legal tradition, political tradition, and also tradition of governance in the Ottoman case. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting, but also kind of deeply depressing that you say that this becomes the norm for the rule of governance in in, in the region. And of course, when we look at more more recent history, and um, particularly in the history of the Republic of Turkey, we've seen a number of instances of states of emergency, of periods of martial law, uh, including, of course, most recently after the uh, the attempted coup um, just last year. So, how far do you see, as a historian, kind of witnessing these events? Um, how far do you see these as a legacy of the Idare Erfia? Is this uh, a direct descendant of these kind of um, legal regimes that we find in the Ottoman Empire transmitted into the Turkish Republic? Or has it kind of mutated over time into something distinct? My project is also to extend my current research on the Ottoman Empire to uh, the Republican era as well. And I do think that uh, there are important elements of continuity between both, starting from uh, the legal framework and indeed this uh, decree on uh, Erfida that was adopted in 1877 actually uh, remained uh, in rule until 1940. 
and the very term Idare of Ye, or rather of Idare, the kind of abridged version uh, that was uh, preferred uh, in the uh, Republican period, remained used in the Republican period actually uh, quite later on, I mean, in uh, until the uh, 1960s. Now it's kind of forgotten by the young generations. It does not evoke anything, but for the older generations, this is something which is uh, very well known. Another element, both of continuity and difference, but an element that for sure should be uh, taken into account in this evaluation of the legacy is geography. And as I said before, in the late Ottoman Empire, the Ophidari was mostly uh, implemented in the Balkan. And unsurprisingly, because there were, bo- there were both uh, foreign and internal threats, national movements, by the 1890s onwards, it started to be used as well in eastern Anatolia. And this was connected mostly to uh, the Armenian movement. Um, of course, during uh, the Balkan War and uh, the First World War, this Fidari uh, was extensively used both in the Balkan and then uh, in Eastern Anatolia. And this court martial had uh, an important role in the Ar- Armenian genocide. So uh, this was an implementation that uh, continued throughout the period of transition from the Ottoman Empire through uh, the Republican era. Now, if we look at the implementation during the Republican era, we see a kind of continuity uh, in the geography as well. Of course, many parts of the Balkan were uh, no more uh, part of the Turkish Republic. But interestingly, uh, if you look at uh, the list of uh, the state of emergency uh, implemented in the Republican era, one of the region uh, that comes first is the region of Edirne in Trace. So uh, because of this uh, border, because of the proximity with Greece. But the other main uh, region that emerged during the Republican era for the implementation of the Ophidare is, of course, eastern and southeastern Anatolia. Within this idea of uh, legacy, I think it's important to um, take into account not only the very notion of Ophidare, but also different kinds of regimes of exception that were either associated with it or uh, implemented beyond or uh, besides it. And I think that's what uh, characterized the Republican era and somehow differently from uh, the Ottoman period, that is the elaboration of a kind of, um, how to say, a superposition of uh, regimes of exceptions, law of exceptions that could be used uh, in various circumstances in order to uh, face various threats. And I just give uh, one or two examples. First, 1925, this uh, Takriri Sukun, this law on the maintenance of order that was uh, used after Shesaid uh, rebellion, and that applied to the whole Turkish territory. And there is a very interesting debate in the parliament, in the assembly at that time, on the need of such a measure while the Ophidare was already implemented there. And there was a kind of consensus in on the idea that uh, several uh, regimes of exception used conjointly or alternatively was the best way to uh, establish order and uh, maintain order. Another example, the laws on settlement adopted in the 1930s that also were associated in many uh, respects, uh, in many 
cases with uh, application of the state of emergency. But to put it very short, I mean, during the Republican era, one of the main functions of uh, the state of emergency and other regimes of exceptions was to deal with the Kurdish mm-hmm. issue and uh, was to deal with actual threats against uh, public order or against uh, the regime, but also to deal with what was conceived as a kind of structural enemy of the regime. And we see it uh, maybe in uh, the clearest terms after uh, 1980, in the 1990s, with this oral that was applied uh, in uh, eastern, southeastern Anatolia, and that opened the way to a wide range of uh, forms of state violence and uh, infringements on rights. We've looked at Muhassara Hali, Urfi Darye, Sıkı Yönetim, and and more contemporarily Olan Üstahal. So we've traced this uh, legal concept uh, from the late Ottoman Empire all the way to the Turkish Republic and more contemporarily as well. What's next when it comes to looking at this legal concept? What what else needs to be done? Uh, a lot needs to be done, actually, and little has been done. So uh, one aspect is uh, the legal and political meaning of these notions in their continuity, but also in their specificity and their relations to constitutionalism, what they mean not only in terms of exceptionality, but what they mean also for the political system of the late Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. The other aspect is related to uh, the effects of such uh, regimes of exceptions, the social effects, the local effect, what they mean for uh, the population that are uh, under these regimes. And I think it's very important, it's also not uh, very much done, to take to study these notions not only from the center or from their uh, legal or political or meaning in a kind of theoretical way, which is the thing which is the most uh, done for states of exception in uh, various contexts, but also to try to understand how uh, they impact the everyday life of the citizens in different ways, according to the geography, the period, but also the social and ethnic affiliation of uh, the subjects in the Ottoman Empire, but also the citizens in the case of uh, modern Turkey. And I think that uh, it is important, even if you look at uh, today's oral, uh, mm-hmm. uh, oral you cannot understand what is oral if you don't take into account what it means for different categories of population. I would just like to say, and I'm sure many of our our listeners will appreciate this too, is that very often historians, no matter how good they are, and we've had some fantastic historians on this show, historians often find it kind of hard to justify their existence in a number of ways. Their research topics can be quite abstract. They can be in such a distant past that it's hard for people to see what they mean today. And listening to you speak now, um, it's clear that your research is not only fascinating, but it's of such immediate and one might even say urgent relevance. And um, so I'm sure, speaking at least for myself, that we are we are really, really looking forward to seeing the fruits of this really important bit of, of thinking and historical investigation. So thank you, really, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Actually, I wish it had not been so <laughs> urgent, <laughs> you know, relevant to the present, but yes, you are right, indeed, it's a very uh, topical issue.
And with that, our thanks goes to Dr. Noemi Liviak, so from myself and Dr. Michael Talbot. Yes, thank you so much again. It was really brilliant. Thank you very much. If you'd like to find out more on this topic or to listen to other podcasts, you can go to our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where there is a relevant bibliography on the topic we've discussed today. Remember to also follow us on Facebook. I'm Tainan Gingur. Thanks for listening.